This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Hill Goldberg about his new book, Across the Expanse of Jewish Thought, From the Holocaust to Halacha and Beyond, published by Kitav in 2022. The kaleidoscope breadth of Jewish thought marks this volume on prayer, biblical interpretation, musar, theology, and biography, tributaries highlighting the mainstream, Halacha. Rabbi Goldberg treats halakha not as a concept, but via its small letters, exemplified in the laws of mikveh and expressed in philosophy of halakha, the prism of mikveh, and the Vilna Gons codes. Rabbi Goldberg draws on his prior work on cross-cultural Jewish thinkers from Eastern Europe to gather multiple voices of Jewish thought under the canopy of the whole. Rabbi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. I'm born in Denver, a Denver native, graduated of public schools in Denver, Went to Berkeley for one year, University of California, Berkeley, during what was called the free speech movement. Transferred to Yeshiva uh, University, learned Torah, learned a lot of Torah there. Went off to Brandeis in graduate school, got married uh, a few days before graduation, and I'm not sure how I passed any final exam. And studied with great scholars and, and Brandeis. Went off to Israel and studied Torah in Israel for many years. I got smeared in Israel. We lived in Israel for 10 to 11 years. And I've been back in Denver editing the Intermountain Jewish Studies since then and functioning as an independent scholar. Beautiful. That's great. And I should say as well that I want to give a shout out to your son, Chaim, who, as we'll see, potentially he helped in some ways help this book come together. And also he's a friend of mine and a great guy. So I'll say that as well. Let's move a little bit to the book. How did you come to write this book? Well, I didn't really write the book. I worked on individual topics in Jewish thought over the course of 45 years. One of the essays in this book on Orphan Siddiquim, an anonymously written Muslim Sefer, began in the 1970s. So over the course of time, I've had a, a great a great variety of interests to identify uh, with uh, Isaiah Berlin's uh, Fox in his metaphor, that is to say, I have a great deal of diverse interest in Jewish thought. So I have published over the course of this time many books, but I've also worked on individual subjects and theology, commentary, philosophy, Tehillim. So this is a collection of essays that have emerged really over the course of 40 to 50 years. I might also say, I'm not sure this is of great interest to the listeners, but I'm an inveterate rewriter. Uh, many, many of these essays have, been, essays have been published previously, but have been greatly rewritten, and I rewrite over it. A lot of our listeners are 
our writers, editors, people who, who work in the field. So I think that's helpful and encouraging to know that even though something might be written, it, it could be redone. Are, are there any examples, any, anything that comes out within the book that you wrote and maybe revised a fair amount? Oh, absolutely. Let me give you one example. Uh, the chapter on philosophy of halacha, which I dealt with uh, a philosophy of halacha through the lens of the laws of mitzvah. My argument basically is that if you want to deal with a philosophy of halacha, you can't deal with abstractions. You have to deal with the halacha itself in its detail. In any event, I published this in 1994, 1995, in tradition. Uh, in uh, journals such as tradition, there are letters to the editor. Uh, and a letter to the editor came in and it critiqued it. So I was given the opportunity to respond to the critique, which is a pretty customary uh, type of exchange in a letter section. I didn't respond to the critique. I didn't have a response to the critique. I thought that the person who wrote the critique, who I don't know, uh, basically um, undermined uh, many of the points I was making. And he set me to thinking. I thought for 25 years uh, to try to figure out what he was saying, what I was saying was wrong, and whether anything that I had said was rescuable. So I rewrote substantially that chapter based on the critique. And uh, that letter that appeared, you know, some, well, by now 30 years ago, more or less, in uh, tradition. That's a nice story and something which is, helps understand the book as, as, a, as a collection and something that came together over a number of years. You mentioned that your interests are, are quite broad and the topics, as we said in the book, are also quite broad. Is there a, a thread, some sort of common theme that, that links it all together? Uh, in this book, perhaps so, but uh, certainly not taking my work as a whole. I have published uh, uh, line by line, phrase by phrase commentaries, uh, or perhaps I should say super commentary on the commentary of the Vilna Gon on the laws of mitzvah and on the laws of Sphinx Faker, doubts and, and, and uh, probabilities in Jewish law. So this is commentary. This is Hebrew. This is halacha. This is... Uh, this is uh, thinking somebody asked me once, oh, uh, so what is your source material, you know, for writing on the Villa Gone? I said, I don't have any source material. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, when you deal with the commentary of the Villa Gone, which is highly elliptical, uh, and of course he knew everything and had everything at his fingertips. I've often said it took me uh, 11 years to write my second volume on the Villa Gone, probably took him a few hours to write it. Um, in any event, uh, basically, writing on the Vilna Gaon is a process of thinking. He cites a Gemara. Okay, the Gemara has a lot of topics on the page. Which one does he want? What is he trying to say? What does he deduce from this? Uh, a lot of that is just taking time to think it through. Uh, so that's one kind of, you know, what kind of uh, study of Torah. Study of Jewish philosophy is different. A uh, study of Musser and Musser personalities is different. So I'm not looking for a thread. Even if there's no thread, it's still something which, which there's a lot to learn from. I think it's also helpful. People are looking for different things. They, they can find a lot of different things within the volume. I want to look a little more at the book. And before we continue to turn the pages, just to start on the cover, the, the title itself is Across the Expanse of Jewish Thought, From the Holocaust to Halakha and Beyond. Were there other titles or was this the one that, that came out at first? 
I was at an OU event many years ago. It was after I published my book, Between Berlin and Slipbox. There was a question and answer period. Somebody in the audience is asking the question, oh, you really mistitled this. It really should have been. I forgot exactly what he said between Slobodka and Berlin or not between. Or whatever. He's going on and on. And whatever I tried to answer him didn't satisfy him. Finally, I said to him, with all of my other books, my wife has written the title, not this one. So on this book also, my, my wife wrote the title. I had many ideas. She made the choice. She has a great sense. She came up with the phrase, the fire within for my book. That was a beautiful way to capture the whole book. Um, in any event, uh, you'll have to ask my wife as to why it's titled the way it is. Did the cover image come from your wife or is that, was that a different choice in source? No, I made the cover image. I actually made the cover because I deal with computers all, you know, all day long and making out the newspaper, laying out newspaper pages. So I actually made the, I did the cover myself. Okay, great. And it's, so, since this is only an audio podcast, it's a, it's a nice cover. It's, it's got the, uh, the surface of the moon and we can see, we can see the earth from the moon. So it's a nice way to express an expanse and, and, and the, the breadth of, of, of the book. The other thing I, I want to talk a little bit about is your, your experience and background. You, you mentioned that you're, you've been the editor for many years of the Internet, in, Intermountain Jewish News. Is there, is there a crossover? Are there learnings that you've taken from your work within the, the sphere of journalism to, to the, the work that you've done within Jewish studies in this book in specific, or do you find them to be disparate fields and, and keep them separate? No, they're definitely crossovers. There are definitely learnings, to use your term, or definitely journeys from one to the other. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, when I was uh, living in Israel, uh, I was studying in yeshiva. I was also teaching in yeshiva. And I was also teaching at Hebrew University, and I was writing for the Intermountain Jewish News. I had to learn how to focus instantly on different types of material. I had to be able to write a column for a newspaper, and five minutes later, I had to prepare a class. So that period of time uh, really trained me to, uh, to focus, to teach me how to focus on very different things uh, almost instantly. The author of Helm called his students in for a five-minute Seder, a five-minute learning session. So what did he do that for? He wanted his people to be able to focus instantly, to be able to sit down, not wasting any. So first of all, just in terms of methodology, uh, there is crossover in the sense that uh, you learn how to focus on different kinds of material. Uh, second of all, uh, you learn we're a journalist to so try to be clear. Oftentimes I'm told that in academia, the purpose is to not be clear. I have a bias on behalf of clarity uh, and concision. So that's something you pick up as a journalist. So I try to carry that into what I write, although there are, there are very different styles and, you know, you, you can look at them and see that they're, they're very different, but nonetheless, from the internal workings of my mind, there is a lot of benefit from needing to practice as a journalist and needing to write uh, more uh, lasting and uh, deeper things uh, at the same time. Thank you. I, I want to move a little bit to the content of the book. And so there's different sections. So there's a section on theology, commentary, piety, musar, halakha, 
And then there's sections of philosophy and biography. I want to start at the beginning with theology. So the first thing you talk about there is Holocaust theology. Moving back to what we said, that there's been some development in your thought. What are you writing here about Holocaust theology and hasn't developed at all over time? It's too early to write a Holocaust theology. People say, oh, but we have a theology of, of destruction. Because after the destruction of the Second Temple some 2,000 years ago, we said, uh, because of our sins, we are south from our land. However, as, as scholars point out, that that theology, so to speak, it didn't emerge until roughly a century after the destruction. It, it, it takes a long time to be able to absorb the evil. Unfortunately, uh, those of us who are living post-October 7th uh, are living that. Uh, we're survivors in a way ourselves. Uh, I, I can't absorb what happened on October 7th. I'm not sure anybody can. And uh, so after the Holocaust, you know, how, how do we absorb something like that? It takes a long time before uh, the reality settles in in a way and time passes that one can begin to devise some kind of uh, a theology. So what I've done in that chapter is, instead of trying to set forth a theology like that, I've gone back and listened to survivors. That there was something called the World Gathering of Holocaust Survivors in, I think, 1981 in Jerusalem. There were some four or 5,000 survivors at one place. Uh, and I spent a lot of time with them. I listened to them. And I tried to, you know, to figure out what they were trying to say or what it was they couldn't say or what it was that would need to be overcome before they could say. Uh, so I've titled this Holocaust Theology, The Survivor's State. Now... There are virtually no survivors left. Now, maybe in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, maybe some kind of theology will be so, uh, uh, emerged. Uh, but, but for the present time, what I've tried to argue is uh, we need to listen to what happened, listen to the people it happened to. I, th I think that's it's very powerful indeed. The, the next chapter, we won't go through every chapter, but I want to just make sure we get, we get some good discussion about different sections here. So the next chapter, you speak about the essential Jewish prayer. The first of the 18 blessings is Shimon Esrei. What exactly are you doing here with, with this chapter, looking at the, the prayer text and commenting on it? And have you or would you or could you do a similar sort of thing on the, on the whole Shimon Esrei? If I lived to a thousand years, maybe. Um... Uh, I wrote this chapter as on the basis of reflections that I had on the first paragraph of the Shemot Esrei over the course of maybe 20 or 30 Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur's. Uh, people who pray daily pray the first paragraph of the Shemot Esrei. It has a unique status. Uh, but what does it mean? Uh, do these words simply uh, rattle off our tongue? Uh, what do they mean? So I tried on the holiest moments of the year when hopefully we are the most focused and most understanding. I tried to figure out what was being said there. And so you asked me, could I write a Gold's Monastery? Well, if I had another 20 or 30 Roshaniam Kippers for each paragraph, maybe. I, th I think that, you know, we always have a limited amount of time. So I think that what you've done here is, is a great first step or even great in and of itself. One of the other things, if we move to the next section, the next section is is commentary. You have comments and commentary on different works, different parts of, of the Bible, for example. What were the different sources they were using? What were the different sources to, to do the interpretation? Then what were the different texts they were commenting on? Well, I, I, I'm probably oversimplifying here. 
But if we look at uh, biblical commentary as it has emerged over the last, say, 100, 150 years, we see a kind of fundamental shift. Uh, when we look at traditional commentaries, whether uh, going back to Rashi or going all the way up to the Malbim, for example, uh, we see a very uh, careful uh, attempt to understand each word, each phrase, uh, and to set forth a meaning to understand what uh, problems might uh, reside inherently in the phrase and what the answers might be. What's, what's, what's changed, I think, is what we now have is an attempt to grasp uh, to grasp larger topics uh, within the sacred text as a whole. So, for example, if we look at uh, Sefer Breshis, the book of Genesis, uh, we see, of course, it's focused on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, and, and the four mothers, uh, and so forth. And when we look at the individual commentaries, they're on, uh, we'll have... Uh, each verse and each word and each verse explicated. What's happened uh, over the course of the past number of decades is commentators want something more. They want to know who was Abraham? What was his personality? What was his purpose? Uh, if we were to write a, a bi well, we could write a biography of uh, Abraham Lincoln. So what if we were ever, ever to, what if we were to write a biography of Avrovino, of Abraham, our father? Could we do the same thing that we might do for Abraham? So this is what's emerged. Can we get a larger picture? Who was, you know, who was the biblical Ruth? You know, brilliant book written on, on Ruth. Uh, L. Ziegler and, and many people labor in these fields. So what I tried to do is uh, just come up with a, perhaps a larger picture of a personality. I dealt with Ruvain, with, Jose, with Hosea. Uh, Reuben and, and Hosea, uh, for example, uh, tried to deal with uh, perhaps the most difficult chapter in the entire Hebrew Bible, the binding of Isaac, and see if we could come up with a picture of Isaac as a total person, as a personnel. So that's more or less what's animating those chapters. It's so important to, to think about the behind the scenes of, of commentaries and, and what's driving them and, and the historical context. I think that, that there's a lot of great stuff here to, to dig into. The, the next chapter is, or, or the next section is piety, or Musar is, is the way it's translated here, or maybe Musar is translated as piety, we'd, we'd probably say better. Two-part question here. What exactly is Musar? And I know you've written about, focused a lot of, on this throughout your career. So what is it? And then the second question would be, if we're looking at the section, there's there's two chapters and other sections, there's a lot more chapters. Were there other things that you could have included, wanted to include? Why do we only have two chapters? We'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this Musar section. It's difficult to define a Musar. It's difficult to define. It could be defined as ethics. It could be defined as introspection. Um, it can be de defined as going beyond the letter of the law. Uh, as it uh, came to be the name of a movement in the 19th century Lithuania, the Muslim It basically stood for uh, trying to uh, be uh, scrupulously honest in one's observant and scrupulously uh, precise in one's observance, including uh, one's uh, including interpersonal relationships. So, uh, 
th that's the focus uh, on Mosera in this, in my book, in these particular chapters. Uh, I studied with many great Musser personalities in Jerusalem. I studied with people who had studied in great Musser issues before the Holocaust. Uh, and I was deeply impacted by them, deeply influenced by them. Uh, so, and, and I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on the thought of Israel Sinatra. So the one chapter I have in this book is kind of a distillation, so to speak. Of, of that dissertation. Uh, it's called The Early Psychologists of the Unconscious. This is on the thought of Richard Solon. And the burden of his thought summarizing is how can I make certain that when I observe a mitzvah, I'm doing it with pure motivation and a pure way? How can I make certain I'm not driven by uh, unaltruistic motivations? Uh, and so Richard has a whole philosophy of the human psyche. That is to say, how does one discover those levels of motivation that are not conscious in a person without which, that is to say, without discovering them, a person really can't be certain that one observes the Torah from pure motives. So that's more or less that chapter, that, that thought of Rimesos and Bunter. And it's a long one. There are maybe fewer chapters in this particular section, but they are long. And then I've always been fascinated by the uh, Musser work, or Hasidiki, uh, for several reasons. One, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, this is a person who hid his identity. This is a person who worked purely uh, from altruistic motives. Centuries, centuries later, we don't know who wrote the book. We're not even sure which century it was written. It, that itself is inspired. He was not in this for any self-glory whatsoever. He was doing this to try to enhance the understanding and the observance uh, by the Jewish people. Uh, then the, chat, the book itself has always fascinated me because it's not structured in a linear way. In other uh, very well-known Musser works, uh, they're structured in a linear way. You know chapter one, and you need to know chapter one in order to know chapter two, or you need to master a certain trait in order to master the next one. That's not how Orphan Siddiqui works. It's a, it's a dialectical work. It's got a whole slew of character traits. One need not read the book in order. And he deals with opposite traits. He deals with, for example, anger. That's a terrible trait, but sometimes anger or the appearance of anger is good. Stinginess is bad, but sometimes it's good. He, he, he sees the, uh, the subtleties in character traits. Um, that's what drew me to that book. And I argue in that chapter that that kind of a dialectical structure is really what drives the thought and the underlying way of Ruby Silsalantra also. You mentioned that one of the chapters here is a distillation of your dissertation. A number of our listeners have written or are, are working on doctoral dissertations and either now or in the future might want to turn them into a book, into a chapter. What was the process for you? How did you take something which was long and detailed and had a lot of, I'm sure, footnotes and, and references? How did you turn it into something a bit more readable, presentable, and much shorter, presumably, than the actual dissertation? Well, the first thing that needs to be realized is that with very rare exceptions, a dissertation is not a publisher book. Uh, something needs to be done to it. Um, and that, and Many people don't realize that, and they struggle to publish their dissertation without revising it, without rethinking it, without doing anything else with it. 
uh, maybe lengthening it, maybe shortening it. Uh, so uh, that that's step number one. And then step number two is that uh, this chapter I wrote on restructuring Lutheran literature, Rabbi Israel Salantra and Orphan Siddiqui, was kind of the last uh, major topic uh, that I couldn't fit into my dissertation. Um, I didn't have the time. I didn't have what we call today the bandwidth. I was so focused on what needed to be focused on his thought. I couldn't take it to a larger level of conceptualization. So it took me many, many years to do that, that chapter. And I really was talking about it. I wanted to finish it because I really felt I hadn't really completed the thought of Rizal Solantra without explaining the relationship between him and Opusadi. I might also add this, oh, it's not what you asked very frequently in writing dissertations. This is my motto, when in doubt, leave out. There's a lot of things one thinks is, you know, really belongs there and really thinks, uh, a person really thinks, writer thinks he's got it right. Often one does not have it right. Takes courage to erase. Yeah, it does take courage to erase. I know that from experience as well. So I appreciate that. That's a good feedback for people and a good thing to take into consideration. I want to make sure that we're cognizant of time and then also just to, to get into the different sections. We mentioned the, the Musar section. The next section is, is Halakha. In this section, you have chapters one on the on the Vilna Gon, and actually that's the only chapter within this the section. We mentioned a little bit the Vilna Gon. Who was he? What, what was he trying to do with his halachic work, and, and how did you explicate that within this chapter? Vilna Gon was born in 1720, died in, uh, in 1797. He was a legend from his very earliest years. He had a mastery of the entire Torah, the entire Talmud. It is not, I, I'm not an expert in the life of the Vilnagon. I think it's not fully established or fully confirmed, but I think it is believed that he did spend a couple of years wandering around the libraries in order to ascertain uh, different nuschos, different versions of uh, the Talmudic text. Uh, in any case, he did not hesitate to amend them when he thought uh, his emendation was the more accurate version. He carried around hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of, of, of data in his mind. Uh, the entire Talmud, uh, all of the different uh, versions, all of the different uh, emendations, all of the commentaries thereon that were written up until the time that he lived. So uh, I think it's fair to say no one has, no one has had the mind of the Villagoan since, you know, since he passed. So what he wrote, he wrote in an extremely elliptical fashion. I'm not certain that we know exactly why. Was it because for him everything was so clear all he needed to write down was a few notes? Was it because he really wrote these notes in the Code of Jewish Law for himself, not to be published, and therefore being fully uh, explicating them fully was not his, his goal? I'm not sure I have the answers to those, but whatever the answers to those questions are, the results are very obvious. They stand before us. The results are a, co a comprehensive commentary on the Code of Jewish Law with reference to every possible source that could have served as the basis of one of its laws. And, uh, and he wrote it in an extremely elliptical way. It's very difficult to decipher. I am very far from the only person who's tried Many, many people, much greater scholars than I, uh, have tried to, uh, you know, unravel uh, the, the words of the Vilna Gon. There's, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 
50 volumes like this, people have spent, you know, years and years, they're trying to fathom what he meant. Uh, and what I, to give one example that I find very inspiring, he has one comment, which consists of perhaps 25 words, I say perhaps, because you don't know exactly how to count the words because he uses contractions and abbreviations is that one word is two words. So we'll say uh, imprecisely that he has a comment of about 25 words. These 25 words um, uh, have changed the way the laws of mikvah are understood and have changed the way mikvahs are built. So I ask you, what other person in any field of human, of human or divine knowledge, wrote 25 words, uh, say, roughly 250 years ago, and we're still talking about them, and we're still agonizing over them, because there are two basic schools of thought as to what those 25 words mean. And the greatest minds of the Jewish people, the greatest Talmud scholars, Grzynski, the Rav Vilda and many, many, many other Ramavad Yosef, the greatest minds of the last 200, 250 years of struggle over 25 words. Is there any comparable example in any field of knowledge? I doubt it. To me, that's very expiring, how a person could be so knowledgeable and, 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 and with the capacity to compact what he was thinking into such a small space and demand uh, or command, perhaps is the word, command the uh, the attention of the greatest minds of the Jewish people ever since. It's very inspiring to study the Vilna. We mentioned a couple of times the halacha uh, regarding mikveh. We said in the in the intro, we were just speaking about it a little bit before. A two part question here. One of them is is if we look in your section on philosophy, you've got a chapter there on philosophy of halacha, the pr the prism of mikveh. I want to understand a little bit about the philosophical principles we can understand from mikveh, so just digging in there. And then also to understand why you have this chapter in the philosophy section and not the halakha section, because it is dealing with a halakhic topic. First of all, it says the prism of mikveh. It could be the prism of any set of, uh, of halakha. Trying to argue there is that through the individual halakhas, you are able to build inductively a philosophy of halakha. I happen to have chosen that section. Someone else could choose another section. And the reason I chose that section is entirely subjective. Um, somehow or another, when I started studying the laws of Mitzvah in about 1991 or so, I became hooked. They just spoke to my soul, and they were so poetic. They were so beautiful. I couldn't put it down, and I've still not put it down. Uh, so that's a purely subjective decision. But it was advantageous. And because these halakhas attracted me so much that I became, you know, very, uh, very involved with their, with, with them in their, in their detail. No detail was uh, not meaningful to me. So I was able then to make an argument that it takes knowledge of the details to, to build the larger picture. Um, I might add, by way of personal experience, that uh, the reason I studied started studying the laws of Mitzvah to start with is because I went to Salt Lake City in, uh, I forget, it was 1990 or 1991. I met an individual who wanted to build a Mitzvah. He had no knowledge of halacha, 
had tremendous, uh, tremendous commitment and a tremendous love of Hashem and love of Torah, but without the knowledge. And, and so, and he, and he showed me a, uh, a schemata, you know, an architect's drawing of a mitzvah. So I said to him, you know, this is, you, you can't do this. This is, this is not a mitzvah, not a push. You, you, need, you, you need an expert. So. Uh, I put him in touch with an expert. Long, long story short, is we built a McFin Salt Lake City. Uh, but I came back to Denver and I felt uh, embarrassed. How can I tell a person that uh, you know he doesn't know the laws of the McFin when I don't know them myself? Uh, I, I need to sit down and study this. I, I can't be talking like that. And then I started studying and I got hooked and I ended up supervising and building other McFins in other places. Um, so you asked, uh, you know, why a philosophy? Well, that's, that's, you know, that's, that, that was a challenge that, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik set forth that he said that, you know, uh, a philosophy of Aloha awaits formulation. I'm not giving you the exact quote or something to that effect. And so I felt challenged by that. And, uh, I was also challenged by something Rosenzweig had said, which is, if you want to understand Aloha, you got to go to the details, can you can't understand this just as abstractions. Uh, so I had the details of the mix and I tried to thereby set forth on that path to build a philosophy of a lot of their. I like the, the personal touch and, and the way that that turned into both practical doings and as well as, as, as uh, research. I think that that's a nice touch there. The last section is biography and you've got two chapters there. As a broad question, what what draws you to a biography? In this section, you've got these chapters, but you've also written in the past uh, different biographies of, of different important characters in Jewish history. What, what, what's been the draw for you to write biographies of different types? I'm not sure I can answer that other than by saying I'm drawn to great people. Uh, I have been privileged to know many great people in my life. I knew uh, many great Muslim personalities uh, back in the Holy City. Uh, I've known great people at Denver, and uh, and, and then um, I've started. I started to write about them when I wrote the Fire Within, and uh, and I haven't stopped. I wrote an essay a few months ago about a woman I think most people have ever heard of, a woman named Judith Hemmendinger. Judith Hemmendinger, uh, at the age of twenty-two, uh, ran an institution from which emerged the Nobel Prize winner. A world-class Talmud scholar, a chief rabbi of Israel. Uh, this is a woman who had in her uh, care uh, children or teenage Holocaust survivors. And she ran an institution for a couple of years in France. Uh, people of many decades older than her resigned from the position because they were not able to handle these broken and bitter uh, young people. And uh, And she was able to you know, bring out their best. Uh, so she's still living. Thank God. Age 100. I've never met her. But uh, I ask you, who has run an institution uh, for which there emerged the chief rabbi of Israel and a great Talmud scholar, the Nobel Prize winner, Elie Wiesel, over a couple of years at the age of 22. Here's a great woman. Here's a great person. I'm inspired. That's in and of itself, I think, is inspiring for me and for our listeners. I've asked a bunch of questions. Is there anything that I left out, anything you want to add that can help us better understand the book and its content? You know, I, I just I just hope that the book 
um, is able to uh, open up for people the great breadth of Jewish thought. Uh, it's okay to specialize. I've specialized in the Vilna Dawn. I've specialized in the Wilson Rule, but I also had many great other interests. And uh, the, the, this world belongs to the whole Jewish people. Uh, I'm hoping that people can see the beauty and the holiness and the whole breadth of uh, Jewish law. Amen to that. I think that's, that's a great mission. I've taken up a lot of your time, Rabbi Goldberg. On the New Books Network, we have a traditional closing question I'd like to ask you. What are you working on next? I'm working on two things. One, I've actually finished, or maybe almost finished. I've written a book which I've tentatively titled uh, Numbers Take Weight. Numbers Take Weight. I've tried to analyze the meaning of numbers in the Torah and the Talmud. Uh, numbers appear on almost every page of the Talmud and every chapter of the Torah. And they're often, I think, skipped over. Uh, it says, for example, that, uh, I forgot his full name, the sages it gave him 300, um, uh, 300 barrels of oil, uh, whether it's cooking oil or oil for light, because he was going to resolve the discrepancies between the book of Ezekiel, Sabriel, Hezkel, and what's written in the Halakha, in the laws of the Torah. Okay, so obviously they gave my, the sages gave him a lot of support. Is there any meaning to the fact that it was three hundred barrels of uh, oil that they gave? It would would the meaning have uh, of the story have changed? There had been two hundred ninety barrels or three hundred and ten barrels. I've gathered in the course of uh, looking through the Talmud and the Torah some thirty five forty instances of the use of the, of uh, three hundred. And various adonites, waves, or 300, whatever they're called, parsed high, why 300? What is the meaning of the number seven, or the number eight, or the number 13, 42, uh, five? Um, I've tried to uh, establish that meaning by gathering many, many examples thereof, and then illustrating the meaning in incidents from human life. So it's partly biography, it's partly an abstract uh, uh, investigation of the meaning of numbers. And then I'm trying to work on a Hebrew work also uh, uh, called the Zephira Shabbos also the Positive Commandments of Shabbos, which is a subject I think rarely addressed or even understood to exist. I think most people you thought so about the Positive Commandments of Shabbos. They, oh! Well, yes, of course, we have Kiddish. What else is there? I've, I've located so far 17 or 18. So I will work on that. All right, beautiful. Staying busy. It's a lot, a lot of good stuff. I'm looking forward to having that come out, and maybe we'll have a further conversation about at least one of those books. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your good question. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Rabbi Goldberg about his new book, Across the Expanse of Jewish Thought, From the Holocaust to Halakhan Beyond published by Katav in 2022. Happy reading, my friend.